0: Real Presence Radio. In the next hour, we have Dr. Jan George from Sacred Heart Productions, teaching on Acts of the Apostles. Dr. George, a retired university teacher of literature, has a Master of Theology from the University of Dallas. Dr. George will be covering chapter 25 and 26, which include the following three topics. King Agrippa is eager to hear Paul. Second, Paul considers himself fortunate. And third, Festus and Agrippa respond to Paul's message. Tune in at this time each week when Dr. George will be walking us through Acts of the Apostles from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study produced by Sacred Heart Productions. Accompanying lessons for each week can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org along with lessons and study guides for other New Testament books. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and his love for his bride, the Church. And now, here is Dr. George covering King Agrippa is Eager to Hear Paul.
1: to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. We begin this lesson with the arrival of Festus, the new Roman procurator, who is procurator of the province of Judea. And St. Luke tells us that three days after his arrival in the province, Festus went up to Jerusalem. Now, although Caesarea was the residence of the Roman procurator and a thriving and large and important city, Festus knows that Jerusalem is itself a hugely important city in Palestine, and so he immediately goes up to Jerusalem for a visit. The chief priests and elders, of course, hear of this. Now two years has passed with Paul in prison, in confinement in Caesarea. We recall that in the last lesson there were some forty or more men who had taken a solemn vow that they would not eat or drink until they had managed to kill Paul. Obviously they break that pact because it is now two years later and it is the same group of Jews who come forward immediately upon hearing that Festus, the new Roman procurator, has arrived in Jerusalem And they go to him and speak to him about the case of Paul. And St. Luke tells us that they urgently asked Festus to support them against Paul and to have him transferred to Jerusalem. Now the Jews know that they will be able to fare better in carrying out their own will if they can manage to bring Paul to Jerusalem. But St. Luke adds, they were preparing an ambush to murder him on the way. So this is still their plan two years later. It's that situation where they have clung to their hatred and their anger, and so it remains. It governs their souls, and so as soon as they have a new opportunity, they recommit themselves to attempting to murder Paul. Now Festus is a new procurator, and history tells us that he was a more efficient procurator, a more just procurator than was Felix, his predecessor. Festus also was was better at managing the different procedures and things that he needed to govern in his province more efficiently or that he expedited things more than Felix was able to do. And so he replies to the Jews that Paul is in custody in Caesarea. Not so quick to accommodate the Jews by having a trial or hearing in Jerusalem, Festus tells them, you come down to Caesarea with me. I am willing to hear the case there, but you come to me. We'll hear this case on my terrain, in my territory, in my court, where I am comfortable with my own power and authority. So he is there for a little over a week. He goes to Caesarea, and again, he deals with this issue immediately. St. Luke says the very next day, After arriving in Caesarea, he took his seat on the tribunal and had Paul brought in. The Jews, of course, have gone to Caesarea. They immediately begin making serious accusations against Paul. But they are unable to substantiate their accusations. They can't make a case by which Festus can understand Paul's guilt, a guilt so great that He should condemn him to death under the law. So Festus says, feeling a little uncomfortable in this situation because he senses that this is about religious matters. This isn't really a matter of Roman law. He then asks Paul if he would be willing to go up to Jerusalem. Are you willing, he says in verse 8, to go up to Jerusalem and be tried on these charges before me there. Now, when the Roman procurator asks Paul this question, yes, it's a question, but in a sense, he's already made the decision in his mind. It's a plan. It's as if the king says, how about if we go to a certain place? It's another way of saying, this is what I plan to do. I just want you to understand this. Paul knows that if he accepts this, if he says yes, if he doesn't try to stand against it, that by going to Jerusalem, he will be done away with for sure. The Jews are only too eager to get him to Jerusalem. First, they want to manage to kill him on the way. But if they get him to Jerusalem, they will certainly succeed in carrying out their plans. Paul has, really, no other recourse than to Caesar. He, as we have said before, is a Roman citizen. He knows his rights under the law. So what Paul does is he appeals to Caesar by saying to Festus, I am standing before the tribunal of Caesar and this is where I should be tried. I have done the Jews no wrong as you very well know because Paul has just heard the fact that the Jews cannot substantiate their own case. If I am guilty of committing any capital crime, I do not ask to be spared the death penalty That shows his simplicity, his clarity of conscience. He knows he's not guilty. He knows that they have no case against him. He said, if I have done something to warrant the death penalty, then I will succumb to that. But he says, you will not find anything against me. If there is no substance in the accusations these persons bring against me, no one has the right to surrender me to them, he says to Festus. I therefore appeal to Caesar." And Festus then confers with his advisor, St. Lucreides, and he says, you have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. But a few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrive in Caesarea. Now King Agrippa is of the Herodian dynasty. He is part of this long line of Herodian kings that rose to power in the first century BC. Now, the Herods, they're really Edomites originally. They're actually descendants of Esau and not of Jacob. And they lived in Idumea. They were called the Edomites. But at the turn of the second into the first century BC, through different kinds of political certain kinds of political relationships that were established between very powerful Jews. The Herods were brought into power, and in the first century BC, they begin to reign as kings of the Jews, the Herodian dynasty. Herod the Great at the birth of Jesus, and then on through the different line, the sons, the brothers, and so forth on down. Now, King Agrippa is the eldest son of the King Herod of chapter 12 of Acts of the Apostles. This is the King Herod who, in Caesarea, had gone to inaugurate the great games in the Colosseum and wearing these robes of splendor, these glittering robes, the people, the people began to revere him as, as a god, as God. And he allowed the people to worship him and as St. Luke says, the angel of the Lord struck him down that very day. He was mysteriously struck down on the spot and died a few days later. King Herod left a young, relatively young family. The oldest of his sons was this Agrippa. But when Herod died, there were those, including the Roman Emperor, who did not feel that Agrippa was old enough to succeed his father as king. So King Herod's brother, this would be Agrippa's uncle, succeeded King Herod to the throne, but was there only a matter of a few years and died in office. Then the eldest son, Agrippa, came into power. And again, we have to remember these are satellite kings, kings of the Jews, who in a sense are given their power and authority the roman empire the roman empire allows them to have power and authority and the more they are willing to ingratiate themselves with the roman procurators with the emperor to be puppets of the roman empire so to speak then they are given sort of more latitude in their kingship so of course this is the case with all of the kings of the herodian dynasty though they were Jews, because when they were brought into power, remember they're Edomites, they're not of the line of Jacob, of Israel, they were en masse circumcised. This is one of the reasons that there were orthodox, observant Jews who never really considered the Herod's true Jews. Yes, they were circumcised. Yes, they were kings of the Jews. Yes, they knew the law and the prophets their knowledge was not a knowledge of grace. But they had to know the Law and Prophets, and they had to observe the Law because they were Jews. But there were those who never thought of the Herods as true Jews, authentic Jews. So there was always this this keeping them at a distance. And the Herods themselves, because they were corrupt, they were immoral, they were hypocritical, They lived as the Jews lived when they were among the Jews, but when they traveled and went into the Gentile world, they lived as the Gentiles. They didn't care. So they were a source of scandal for many reasons to the Jews. Now, Agrippa had a younger sister whom we spoke of briefly in the last lesson, Drusilla. Drusilla was the youngest daughter of King Herod. Bernice was the eldest daughter of King Herod. And King Agrippa and Bernice lived an openly incestuous relationship as man and wife. This was a source of scandal, of gossip, even in the Roman world. People whispered about this. Now Agrippa and Bernice then arrive in Caesarea a few days later. Why do they go to Caesarea? Because they're paying their respects to the Roman procurator. They want to establish a relationship so that they're able to work together conveniently for their own purposes and their own sake. Now they arrive in Caesarea, as St. Luke says, to pay their respects to Festus. Festus is happy for this opportunity because he knows he has found no guilt in Paul. And he knows that the situation has to do with religious matters has to do with doctrines, with truths, with divine revelation of the Jews. And Festus knows very little about this. He knows that Agrippa is king of the Jews. He is a Jew according to the law, that he understands Jewish customs and practices and the things that the prophets said and what it is that the Jews believed as a people of faith. So he comes and What happens, Festus immediately puts Paul's case before the king. And so now in the remainder of chapter 25, we have Festus explaining to King Agrippa about this man whom Felix had left behind in custody. Festus wants to take care of this case. He is beginning his governorship as Roman procurator, already with a sticky situation on his hands. He already has a mess. He already has tensions, increasing tensions. He wants to take care of this matter quickly and to set it aside. So he says the chief priests and the elders of the Jews came to him at Caesarea, demanding Paul's condemnation. He makes it clear to Agrippa that the Jews will rest at nothing short of having Paul found guilty of a capital crime so that he can be condemned to death they want Paul destroyed. But I told them, Festus says, that Romans are not in the habit of surrendering any man until the accused confronts his accusers and is given an opportunity to defend himself against the charge. In addition to this, we have Festus's knowledge that Paul is a Roman citizen. He wants to take care of the matter according to Roman law, particularly in light of the fact that Paul is a Roman citizen. He goes on to say, When confronted with him, his accusers did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. For all that is going on, for all the furor, for the demand of death for Paul, he expected to hear quite the case. And he says, but the case was not what I expected at all. He says, they had some argument or other with him about their own religion and about a dead man called Jesus, whom Paul alleged to be alive. He's thinking, this is a mysterious matter. Isn't this much ado about nothing? Not feeling qualified to deal with the question of this sort, I ask if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and be tried there in the issue. But of course he goes on to tell Festus that Paul appeals to Caesar. Because Paul had appealed to Caesar, he says, I now have to send him to Caesar. But what am I going to say? He's sending Paul to the highest court in the land. It would be as if somebody, a prosecutor, sending a case to the Supreme Court and not having any reasons for the prosecution. He says, what is it I'm going to have to say? What can I say to Caesar in sending Paul? What are the accusations that I must present against him? So hearing this, in addition, no doubt, they must have discussed at length the whole matter, Agrippa would have asked Festus about Paul and so on, and perhaps Agrippa even knows of Paul or has heard of Paul, but he concludes by saying, I should like to hear this man myself. This is very interesting, Agrippa is responding so much like all of his predecessors. There is this theme in Scripture when the servant of God, the anointed one of God, goes among, goes among the people. and they have in them a wisdom and a zeal which is perplexing they have a purity of heart which is attractive which which draws people to them it intrigues them they're interested in it because after all we're all made for truth we're all made for goodness we're all made for virtue and when people find this in a particular servant especially a zeal that that compels that person to set aside any special consideration for their own safety or life because there is a message they bear which is more important than trying to save their own life. And this would be the case with Paul. Also, Paul's constant appeal to justice, although he is the accused man, he himself appeals to truth and justice. This is disconcerting to them. His ability To dialogue with people and to answer questions with courtesy and respect. To live in charity and in virtue. This is unnerving to people. We naturally want to get to the bottom of this. We naturally want to know this case, to meet this person, to talk to this person, see this person for ourselves. This is what St. Luke records about Herod the Tetrarch this would be King Agrippa's predecessor, and St. Luke writes of this in the Gospel. We recall that Herod, he had beheaded John, and immediately after the death of John, Jesus' ministry becomes public. His teaching is amazing. He is performing miracles. And Herod is unnerved by this. He says, I know that I beheaded John, but who is this? Is this John come back from the dead? It's Jesus of Nazareth he hears about, and St. Luke records in chapter 9 that he says, Who is this I hear such reports about? And Herod was anxious to see Jesus. He's anxious to see Jesus, but he never has a chance until at the time of the Passion, when Jesus is before Pilate, then the Roman procurator, Pilate can find no guilt in Jesus he makes this clear, I find nothing wrong here. He knows this is a matter dealing with the people. And St. Luke records that Herod happened to be in Jerusalem at that time. Pilate, the Roman procurator, much like Festus in this situation, was happy to hear that Herod had come to Jerusalem. And he said, so he sent Jesus to Herod. Herod, St. Luke writes, was delighted to see Jesus he had heard about him and had been wanting to see him for a very long time. Moreover, he was hoping to see some miracle performed by him. It's the same thing. I want to see him for myself. Bring him before me. It's that question that is deep in the heart of man and in the mind of man. So, the next day Agrippa and Bernice arrive in great state and they bring with them all the prominent people, of the city, they bring with them the Tribune, there are many officers of the military as St. Luke says, the city notables, they all come in great pomp and circumstance into this chamber or room for this hearing so that in the presence of Festus Agrippa can question Paul himself. Now what is beautiful about this is that God has brought these people together. These are the most powerful the highest ranking people in that province, in that region, both the Jews and the Gentiles. Those who normally would have no interest in the Gospel, who wouldn't take the time, who wouldn't want to hear someone talk about religious matters. Even Agrippa's heart was really not interested in these things. And if Paul, or if any servant of God, were to ask for a hearing, ask for the opportunity to proclaim the Gospel. They would never be given it. But here we have this, it's flipped upside down, this irony, this paradox, whereby God brings together King Herod, Bernice, and all the people that they bring, their attendants, everyone with them, all the prominent people of the city, the Roman procurator, the highest ranking tribunes, other officers of the court, they're all gathered in this particular day, and then Festus who has authority in this particular court, then opens by addressing respectfully King Agrippa, and he says, King Agrippa and all here present with us, you see before you this man about whom the whole Jewish community has petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, loudly protesting that he ought not to be allowed to remain alive. For my own part, I am satisfied that he has committed no capital crime. So Festus is again stating this, just as Pilate, Pontius Pilate, repeatedly stated this in regard to Jesus. I have nothing definite that I can write to His Majesty the Emperor. He says, and this is why I have brought all of you together today. After all, it seems to me pointless to send a messenger without indicating, to send a prisoner rather, without indicating the charges against him.
0: Thank you for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you're just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through Acts of the Apostles from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this next segment, Dr. George will be covering Paul Considers Himself Fortunate. And now, back to Dr. George.
1: Agrippa then begins speaking. Festus has formally, has officially handed over, Festus has handed over to Agrippa the court, the hearing. Agrippa then says to Paul, he motions to him and says, you have leave to speak on your own behalf when you're ready. Paul raises his hand and he begins his own defense. What is beautiful about Paul's opening words is that he starts by saying, I consider myself fortunate. He says, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I stand before you today. And one would think, why does he consider himself fortunate? He is a prisoner. He is hated. He is being unjustly persecuted. There are many people who want him dead. Paul knows he's fortunate because it is through these very circumstances that God has brought together this court of the powerful people in the land, Jews and Gentiles alike, and they themselves, those who normally would not be interested in hearing the gospel, hand over to Paul and say, you speak to us. Paul is actually commanded to speak. And he is only too eager and only too ready to proclaim Christ. Because what he's really interested in Is not simply vindicating himself for proving his own innocence. He knows that, in a certain sense, he will never be able to satisfy the guilt, the accusations that others find in him. But he knows that's not his job. He knows his job is to proclaim the Gospel and to proclaim why it is that he has come to this point in his life. What he wants, in other words, is to proclaim the love of Christ. He wants the world to know the love of God in Christ. That is why every missionary, every servant of the Lord, every prophet, everyone who bears witness to Christ, or to the love of God, speaks of Jesus Christ crucified and risen because the love of the Father is manifested in Jesus Christ crucified the fact that God Himself would die out of love for us. But in order to grasp that, we have to understand that it's God Himself who does this for us. It's not just some man who died under certain circumstances. It is that God the Father sent His Son. And this is why the Proclamation of the Gospel always includes the call to repentance and conversion, which we all need to hear all the time because we are sinners in need of salvation, sinners in need of growth in holiness, sinners who must place our hope in Christ risen from the dead in the resurrection. Because as Paul will say elsewhere in his letters, that if Christ has not risen, then our faith, our whole faith, is in vain. This is why he bases his talk that he gives here to Agrippa and the others upon the Hebrew Scriptures, salvation history, everything God revealed about the Old Testament. Because if Christ has not risen from the dead, then everything the Jews believe up to this point is worth nothing to them. It's in vain. He says, then our faith is in vain if Christ has not risen from the dead. He continues on and he reiterates in the presence of these that the Jews themselves can tell you that they have known me all my life long. They can tell you that what I proclaim today, he says, if they will speak honestly, they will tell you, I am saying nothing different from what I have always believed in. Although he has to qualify that by speaking of his conversion, because the point is that It was through his encounter with Jesus Christ that he came to understand how blind he had been in terms of his understanding of what God had revealed under the Old Testament, under the former Testament. And so he says, and it's now therefore, it is because of my hope in the promise, the very same promise that these Jews in the room will all attest to is what he is saying. The very same promise that the Jews who spoke to Festus a few days earlier in Caesarea he says it's the same thing that they will tell you about this promise he says my hope in this promise is the same one that God made to our ancestors he says do you not see the irony in the fact that I am on trial here today because of the Jews for the very same thing that the Jews themselves place their hope in and that hope of course is in the resurrection he says for that hope your majesty I am actually put on trial by the Jews Why does it seem so incredible to you, St. Paul says, that God should raise the dead? Now when we think about it, everything happening with Paul comes down to the fact, it's not simply the fact that Jesus Christ was crucified. It is the fact that Paul is a witness to the fact that Jesus still lives. That Jesus has risen from the dead. It is that the crucified Christ died, was buried, and is risen from the dead. That's the crux of the matter. This is why the resurrection is the crowning truth of our faith. And Paul says, why is it so incredible to you? He's addressing Agrippa, remember, but even Festus needs to hear this. Why is it so incredible that God can raise from the dead? It's interesting that so many of the very people who reject the gospel of Christ, who reject belief in the resurrection of the dead, of the resurrection of the glorified body, of life after this death. Many of those same people have no problem believing in the fact that they are created out of nothing in the first place. That the God who raises from the dead is the God who created the whole universe out of nothing. That we're not too amazed by. The very fact that we live at all, that God chose us, that God created us because He loved us, because He loves us infinitely, forever. He loves us. And because of that, we are created in love and for love. The very fact that we exist and that we continue to exist is, in a sense, even more amazing Which would be more difficult? Of course, with God, nothing is difficult. Everything is easy. Everything is simple. It's all equal with God. But which would be more difficult? To create out of nothing, to create, let's say, a tree out of absolutely nothing, out of thin air, so to speak, or to create that tree, have the tree die, and then bring the tree back to life so that a year or ten years later, it bears leaves again. We cannot accept the idea that God can bring back to life, but we think little of the fact that he has ever given us life and that he brought everything into existence out of nothing. Paul says, why does it seem so incredible that God should raise from the dead? He then talks of his conversion because he knows that it is his personal encounter with Christ that changes his whole life. He knows that he is speaking to many of the same Jews, relatives, descendants. He's speaking to the same people of which he used to share in life and in thought and in heart, the same people that when he was a Pharisee who strictly abided by the prescriptions of the law and he knows that they have to have this question, this ongoing question in their heart how could Saul of all people who had such understanding, such knowledge, such wisdom, such zeal for the law one who lived it as near to perfect as anyone could live it how could someone like this be so changed? so he always explains, he gives that personal witness regarding his encounter with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. We have, of course, in Acts of the Apostles, three narratives of Paul's conversion. And this is the third one, the first one St. Luke writes in chapter 9, and then we have Paul giving his own conversion narrative in two separate discourses, and this is the second of them. And it's interesting to make a comparison among them because they're little gems we can find unique to each one of the discourses. In this particular one, Paul tells us that when the light appeared and he was knocked to the ground and Jesus spoke asking him, why are you persecuting me? He goes on to say, it is hard for you to kick against the goad, Jesus says to Paul. And he reiterates those words of Jesus here and now. The Lord is same. He says to Paul, it's in scripture, Paul tells us, the word of the Lord to all of us, God is saying to us, it is hard kicking against the goad. What is a goad? The goad is something like a shepherd's staff. A goad is used to herd cattle, just as a shepherd would use a staff to herd his sheep. Now the staff can be used to nudge and prod and gently move, redirect and so on. That's one of the ways they use the shepherd's staff. But sometimes it has to be used a little more firmly, a little more forcefully. Why? Because the shepherd doesn't want the sheep to be lost or to go astray, to get too close to the edge of a precipice. But the dumb animal, the ox, the sheep, will kick against the goad, doesn't want to be guided by the staff, and will resist it. And the Lord is saying two things, really. By kicking against the goad of God, against God's rule, against His guidance, by doing that persistently, we only succeed in hurting ourselves. And in addition to that, it's useless. God, because He loves us, is not going to pull back. The shepherd will not pull back and say, well, there's a particularly stubborn sheep there. I'm just going to let him go. No! The shepherd cares for that sheep And he will be persistent in prodding, in guiding, and even in being firm with that sheep. This touches upon the whole matter of conversion. Paul knows that in saying this, he is speaking in a particular way to Agrippa, to Bernice, to Festus, to everybody there. It's about conversion. We recall the words of the prophet Jeremiah. They're written in the Book of Lamentation. When he prays to the Lord saying, Restore us, he recognizes the contriteness of heart, the clarity of self-knowledge that the sinner, the repentant sinner, must have in turning to God. And he sends this prayer up to the Lord and he says, Restore us to thyself, O Lord, that we may be restored. In other words, he is speaking about grace, how we ask God to restore us to protect us, to give us light. We can't even ask that. We can't hope for it. We can't pray for it. The thought will not even come to our mind unless a grace has gone before that prayer instilling in us that hope and that desire. And by God instilling that in us, He is in a way already fulfilling it. So that by asking God to do it, we are opening our minds and hearts. We are willing to conform our minds to the light of Christ and to configure our hearts to the law of the Lord. And in that willingness, our restoration is already beginning to take place. That is why the Church, in speaking of this, talks of how our endeavor in our repentance for the Lord, that in being configured to the Lord, it requires, it demands of us every effort of our intellect, every effort meaning we must truly seek to know what is good, right, just and true. Festus and Agrippa are doing this, but are they doing it with every effort of their intellect? This is what it demands of us is every effort of our intellect, a strong will, a will that is committed to confirmed in embracing whatever that truth is, that justice is, that good is, an upright heart We have to not only pay lip service to something, we must live it in our lives. And in addition to that, there is the matter of the witness of people in the world who can help us know how to seek God. So this conversion of heart, this search for God, because at the bottom of what is going on in these matters with Paul, in these chapters of Acts of the Apostles, Remember, we have this in Scripture, so we read the narratives. So it's not just that we're reading about something historical in the past. God has put it in sacred Scripture for the today of our hearts. There is a way in which we are all in some way like Festus, like Agrippa, trying to search out, trying to understand what perplexes us around us, trying to separate the wheat from the chaff, in difficult situations, in dilemmas, in puzzles, things that we don't totally understand. In all of this, God is teaching us, but He wants us to actually embrace whatever He has to say to us. We have to, we have to then act upon it. We have to let it conform us. When we don't do that, we are kicking against the goat. And God's just going to represent to us that same lesson over and over and over again. He's not going to let us go, because he doesn't want us to be lost or to be in danger.
0: Thank you for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you're just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through Acts of the Apostles from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org In this final segment, Dr. George will be finishing, Paul considers himself fortunate, and then she will move into the following topic. Festus and Agrippa respond to Paul's message. And now, back to Dr. George.
1: Paul then finishes by saying, explaining in no uncertain terms, why he stands before them this day, talking to them. He tells them that I have appeared to you for this reason, that when God appeared to him, when Jesus appeared to him and said to him, I appoint you as my servant, I am sending you to go forth in the world and to make known this vision and to make known the gospel. He is telling them what he has been commanded to do by God himself. I shall rescue you, God tells him, from the people and from the nations to whom I send you." God is saying, I shall rescue you. Paul, in a sense, is telling them, I'm not really worried about what you're going to do with me or what's going to happen to me, because I have God as my protector. Regardless of what happens to me, God will rescue me. He will protect me. But I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and receive through faith in me forgiveness of their sins. Now he again addresses specifically King Agrippa He says, I could not disobey the heavenly vision. This is a very compelling witness because Paul, in order for him to set aside any concern about his own health, life, well-being, something very critical, very important, something huge, has to lie at the source, has to be the explanation behind all the other explanations. Paul isn't really arguing his case in a direct way. He is arguing the reason behind the reasons, the question behind the questions he is presenting. The explanation behind the explanations is what he is giving. And that is what King Agrippa, as we find out shortly here, he gets that. Paul finishes by saying, I have stood firm to this day, testifying to this great and small alike, saying nothing more than what the prophets and Moses himself said would happen. Agrippa knows this. Now, he may not know thoroughly, he may not have, he obviously does not have the infused wisdom or graced wisdom, that kind of enlightenment of God. But he does know what the prophet said. He does know what the law says. He does know salvation history. He does know what Moses did and what Moses said and Paul is saying all I am doing here and you know it King Agrippa is testifying to what Moses and the prophets testified to. Agrippa will have no answer for this and he knows it because Paul is explaining to them that everything that Moses and the prophets and everything God revealed under the former testament he said all I am doing is telling you that God was true to his word. God fulfilled what he promised. Who among you, he is saying to the people in front of him, who among you will deny that God has done something great or deny that God could accomplish his plan according to what he promised? And what is that? He concludes by saying that the Christ was to suffer and that as the first to rise from the dead, he was to proclaim a light for our people and for the Gentiles. For our people, he is speaking to Agrippa and the Jews, and for the Gentiles, he is speaking to Festus. Paul has proclaimed the light of Christ come into the world. Now, he reached this point, St. Luke tells us, in his defense, and Festus shouts out, Paul, you are out of your mind. You have gone mad by all this learning. Paul answered, Festus, Your Excellency, I am not mad. I am speaking words of sober truth and good sense. And the king understands these matters. And to him I now speak fearlessly. I am confident that nothing of this should come as a surprise to him. Because it's not as if all these things were done in a corner. What is Agrippa going to do? Say that he didn't know? He can't. He's king of the Jews. That too is a paradox. How all the Herods, who so sought to destroy who so persecuted the king of the Jews and all the servants of the king of the Jews. It was the king of the Jews, the earthly, the corrupt, the sinful king of the Jews, who themselves were grafted onto the cultivated olive tree. Now in a sense, it's really a profound mystery because for all the Gentiles, all of us included, most of us at least, We are not Jews according to that particular descendancy. We are Gentiles who have been the wild branch, as Scripture says, who have been grafted onto the cultivated tree. Now, this is Herod. But as sinners, we are grafted on, and yet there is that rebellion. We are a sinful people. And the Herods then have this mysterious role in persecuting and killing Christ, And then his servants following him. Agrippa is not about to deny the prophets and Moses. Paul turns directly to him and says, King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? He asks him point blank. And then he answers the question so as not to be disrespectful or discourteous to him. He says, I know you do. At this Agrippa said to Paul, a little more and your arguments would make a Christian of me. Agrippa is obviously moved. Paul has touched a nerve in him. And actually, this is a sign of life. Because if he touched something dead, for example, if his heart was completely dead, if his mind was deadened, if his conscience was in such a blind stupor that he couldn't hear the voice of truth speaking in him, he wouldn't have responded. He does. He is moved. It's a sign of life. He has heard something. He is not so moved, however, that he is able to embrace, partly perhaps in pride, embrace openly and there in the spot. He does not declare Paul's innocence. But what he says in so many words is, if you keep talking like this, then I'm going to have to maybe join you. Because what Paul says makes sense at a natural level, but he's also been moved through grace, through an actual grace of God. And Paul replies, little or much, I wish before God that not only you but all who are listening to me today would come to be as I am except for these chains. Now he immediately says, I am prepared to speak little more or much more, whatever it takes. He says, I'm here at your service. I will do whatever I need to do in order to complete this. Because what Paul wants is to bring Festus, Agrippa, everyone. He wants them won over both now and forever. And so he says, I'm willing. Well, how does Agrippa respond? That's altogether too much for him. Saint Luke says, he rose from his seat. He rose to leave. He could not, he could not go further. So, we ask ourselves then, is Paul then successful in proclaiming the Gospel to Agrippa and Festus and all those in the room? He is not as successful as he may like to be, because his goal is to win people over, completely, totally, with complete change of heart. On the other hand, Paul understands, just as all servants of the Lord do, that God works often in hidden, quiet, gradual ways, changing the hearts and minds of people even though he can work quickly and more noticeably. But God works in gradual ways. Conversion is usually a thing of a lifetime. It's something that takes years. Now God, of course, wants to bring us to the point where ultimately when we will hand over our mind, our heart, our soul, our will, we will completely commit ourselves to the Lord. That kind of conversion. But that doesn't often happen the very first time someone hears that call from the Lord. We recall what Peter says in his second letter, that God is being patient with you because he doesn't want you to be lost, but rather to come to repentance. So Paul knows that, that he has had success because he has moved these people. What they sense in Paul is something that Jesus himself taught in regard to himself as the Father's Son And the disciples of Christ understand this, too, when they are sent forth in the world to proclaim the Gospel. Jesus' words recorded by John are, My teaching is not from myself, but it comes from the one who sent me. And he says, anyone who is prepared to do his will, he is speaking here of the Father, will know whether my teaching is from God or not. In other words, if a heart is open to what is true and good, and right, in hearing the proclamation of that servant of God, in other words, if the heart is prepared to do his will, we will know in our spirit, in our heart, whether what we are hearing is from God or not. We will know if it's true. He says, or you will know if I speak on my own account. Jesus goes on to say, when someone speaks on his own account, he is seeking his own honor. He says, but when he is seeking the honor of the person who has sent him. So, in other words, he's not concerned about how people look upon him or how they respond to his words because Paul is proclaiming the message he has been given in order to honor Christ, in order to honor the Father. And so Jesus says when he is seeking the honor of the person who sent him, then he is true and altogether without dishonesty. And we know this in our hearts that is why Paul, when he writes in his letter to the Hebrews, he reiterates that Psalm 95, which we hear so often, the church prays it daily, really in the divine office, oh that today you would listen to his voice, the Spirit is saying. Every single day the Lord is saying to us, only if today you would hear my voice and harden not your hearts. For 40 years, he says at the end of that Psalm, for 40 years I was wearied of these people, and I said their hearts are astray, these people do not know my ways that I took an oath in my anger and said, never shall they enter my rest. We recall that the people of the Old Testament, because they were a faithless people, could not enter the promised land. They were unable to enter the promised land. And so St. Paul writes in that letter, to whom did God swear that they would never enter the place of rest? He says, surely it was those who did not believe. He says, so you see that it was their refusal to believe that prevented them from entering the place of rest. In other words, ultimately it is about faith. That's why Paul goes on to say, hearing the message did them no good, just as hearing the message does many people in the world today no good, because, as he says in his letter to the Hebrews, he says, because they did not share the faith of those who did listen to God's Word. It comes down to faith in God's Word, faith that is evidenced through a life lived according to what the Word has said. That's why St. James says that faith without works is as good as dead. And so if the Gospel, St. Paul will tell us in another letter of his, the second letter to the Corinthians, if the Gospel seems to be veiled at all, to Festus, to Agrippa, to any of us in the present world, if the Gospel seems to be veiled at all, it is so only to those who are on the way to destruction and the unbelievers whose minds have been blinded by the God of this world. So they cannot see the shining light of the Gospel of the glory of Christ. It is the light that Paul is shining forth in that room. He is the light on the mountaintop. He is the light that God lets shine by his words. But he says, if what I say is confusing, confounding, If they are resistant, if they are so confounded that they turn and walk away, they cannot listen further. They will not listen further. He says it is because they are blinded by the God of this world. It is because they are already on the way to destruction. They've decided the road they're going to travel. They're not interested in hearing about another way, about the true way. And he goes on to say it's not ourselves. It's never ourselves that we are proclaiming but it is Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, and ourselves. In other words, we proclaim ourselves only to the extent that we make ourselves known to you as your servants, is what he writes in that letter. We proclaim ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So, when God says, let light shine into darkness, he says this in order to penetrate our minds, transform our hearts, That light is that same love that St. Paul speaks of elsewhere in his letter to the Romans that has been poured into our hearts. And this is what he exudes. This is what he transmits. This is what shines forth from him in that room. So, Paul then, in looking at the conclusion of that day, he no doubt did not look upon it as a day without success. He knows that he has done his job in the Lord, He knows that the Word of God will continue to echo in the hours and days ahead in the minds and hearts of those who have heard him. He knows also the words of the prophet Zechariah when he says, It is a day of little things, no doubt, but not a day to be despised. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study on Real Presence Radio. Lessons, study guides, and other material can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org. Please tune in next time while we continue Acts of the Apostles. Dr. George will be covering chapter 27 and chapter 28 with the following three topics. They are saved through obedience of faith, second, the miracle at Malta, and third, and so we came to Rome. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and his love for his bride, the Church.